let you down myself, personally. You know, I never understood that. Why did you judge me? Why did you judge me? You killed innocent people. The means to an end. You started a massacre. I caused the revolution. You betrayed the law. Roar! It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't. I'm your host, Judge Green, and joining me as always is the tyrannical prosecutor of police justice, Judge Raphael. I am Paw Patrol! <laughs> and today we're polishing our helmets as we take a look at a curiously helmetless Sylvester Stallone in Judge Head. Well, if you love your sci-fi Paul Verhoeven movies without the charm, wit, action chops, social commentary, or Paul Verhoeven, <laughs> then Judge Dredd could be the movie for you. <laughs> but is there something special to salvage in the wreckage of this nightmare production? Or is Judge Dredd about as convincing as Stallone's attempts at comedy? Find out after the trailer. Dredd! Dredd! You're under arrest. What's the charge? Murder. The evidence is going to falsify! As charged. I am the law! I am the law! You want chaos? The sentence shall be life imprisonment. I'm the chaos. Dread? Let me crush him, Paul! Excuse me? We're not together. It's not for this council to play God! Who says politics is boring? From the man who brought us Geostorm, kind of, comes Judge Dredd Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, a comic book movie that takes us to an American dystopia run by a fascist police force that deal out harsh justice with little thought or empathy. A world that I must add has absolutely zero parallels with the one we're living in right now. <laughs> <laughs> we begin in Mega City 1, a city whose design is seemingly inspired by both Tim Burton's Gotham City and Trump's Golden Toilet. <laughs> it's a war zone ruled over by walking judiciary systems known as judges. Chief amongst their ranks is the judge known as Dread, a dangerous and mysterious figure that strikes terror in the heart of every street punk and gutter rat, known for his single identifying feature of never, ever removing his hell oh wait no he just took it off <laughs> buckle in for this pg-13 movie that includes multiple gun deaths a corrupt trial cannibals rob schneider dismemberment electrocution rob schneider clone guts a rape joke and rob schneider it's a movie that surely all 10 year olds will love wait wait but what you're telling me the mpaa have rated it and it's no longer pg-13 but why? <laughs> so, uh, Andy, Judge Dredd, 1995. I will say, yeah. from my experience, the film Dredd starring Carl Urban has been one of the most requested yeah. for us to cover on the podcast. And for one reason or another, we haven't done it. And I feel like I'm almost trolling our audience by picking the Sylvester Stallone starring Judge Dredd to cover on the pod. But I feel like there's more to talk about here. Well, for everyone listening who wants that review of the 2012 Dread, it's fine. I remember when we came out of the cinema, because I think we watched that one together. Dread 3D! <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with it. And it gets a lot of things about the character 
right, but it's not particularly remarkable in any way. And I didn't think it was a particularly memorable film. The slow-mo stuff was cool. Yeah, the slow-mo stuff was very cool. I would say it's a four out of five film, but all I would be talking about with that film, like, I enjoyed it. I still enjoy it. I feel like it makes a good double feature with The Raid because they're both similar concepts, but approach them very differently. Yeah, yeah. It's got some issues that are a result of its troubled production, but we don't know that much about how troubled the production was. It's not been that publicized. Yeah. So that episode would be a very short one where you would th- say it's fine and I would say it's pretty good. Yeah. I really I really do like it. It's a nice nice 80s throwback, but yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> so that's where we stand on that one, whereas the, with this one, I feel like I grew up with Judge Dredd. I was the target audience for the PG-13 rating that they were going for with this film. And I loved it back then. Everybody hated it, obviously. We'll go into that later with the reviews. Everybody hated it. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, I, I loved it. It's like 10-year-old Gareth. It had everything I wanted. And by that, I mean it had a giant fuck-off robot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a part of Judge Dredd anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. That comes from a completely different property. Yeah. But uh, what's your experience with Judge Dredd? My experience with Judge Dredd is kind of limited i actually think i even saw dread 3d before even watching any of the um, 95 version my childhood memory goes back to that poster the one of stallone's head yeah because at the time stallone was still a big action star second only to schwarzenegger yeah and so a movie with stallone's name attached and something as iconic as that poster is always going to do the rounds. Like That pretty much is the beginning and end of my experience with Judge Dredd. Yeah, I think I must have seen Dredd, the 2012 version, and then probably not long after, I think Judge Dredd must have been on the TV. And it's a film I've seen multiple times, but always the last hour. I've never yeah. seen the first half an hour of this film. Just in time for Armand Asante to go, Yeah, it's basically, <laughs> I always start this film with Dread being convicted and put on the prison ship. Yes. Yeah, I always watch it at the end from that point, because it's only about an hour. So you're locked in for all the Rob Schneider goodness. Yes. But yeah, I've never seen Schneider in the uh, in the noodle bot. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that that's pretty much it. And I don't have any experience with the uh, 2000 AD comics at all. So yeah, again, I am approaching this very much from a uh, a film perspective, not from how it interprets the source material. Though I do, I know I have done a bit of reading this morning, and I have a sort of fairly decent basic understanding of the comic book series. I watched the film first, so. There was more space for me to enjoy this for what it was when it first came out. Also, I was 10 years old, and this ticked a lot of boxes for me in terms of like the aesthetics that I liked at the time. Yeah. Like I say, big fuck-off robot that shoots people and moves about. Awesome. <laughs> and it also had Stallone in it. I loved Stallone when I was growing up. But as for 2000 AD, I didn't get into those comics until after I'd seen the film. And it was only then I began to see why people were like had issues with this. But also, I would say I'm only a casual reader of the 2000 AD comic books. Yeah. I mainly read Judge Dredd, and I bought a few Judge Dredd omnibuses that I did read. And then I, like the kids we were back then, I got out a lot of Judge Dredd comic books from the local library as well. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I did read quite a bit of Judge Dredd. Mainly, I remember the Judge Dredd, Judge Death 
comic books. Those are the ones that stick in my mind. There's a few like key ones that I haven't read that people talk about as being like the best. Mm-hmm. The Cursed Earth is one that I haven't read, and that's supposed to be like peak dread comic book. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. So I do know of the property. I did enjoy the film. And yeah, it'd be interesting to get into what I feel about it now compared to how I felt about it as a 10-year-old. Yeah. Because... I would also say I'm not that precious about things like Dread taking off his helmet in this version or anything like that. I'm not particularly precious about the property itself, but I feel like mainly that is because we have another version that is a bit more faithful in many other regards. Yeah. Now, let's go into some context. Let's uh, look at this troubled production and go through a few of the key points in the making of this film. It is actually directed by a director called Danny Cannon, who was coming off his successful debut, which was a film called The Young Americans. I've not seen it. But I do want to just go through a couple of names of directors who were first considered for the role of director. So we have Rennie Harlan, who was seems to have been considered for every action film of the 80s and 90s at some point. Uh, we have Richard Donner, which makes sense considering he had made one of the two most successful yeah. <laughs> uh, comic book franchises, really, with Superman. We have another name which feels apt to this world as well, which is Peter Hewitt. I feel like with his visual style, he could have probably made a strong Mega City one as well. And then we also have an obvious choice considering they had made Hardwire, yeah. Richard yeah. Stanley the weird old kook that he is. (laughs) And Danny Cannon was eventually chosen for director, and he is actually a diehard fan of 2000 AD, to the point in which he once entered a competition for the magazine, for the comic book, where it was one of those design-your-own posters for a Judge Dredd movie, and his was the winning poster. And on that poster, it, it had Harrison Ford as Dredd, And it also had Christopher Walken as a Mm co-star, which is actually uh, a little bit coincidental that the eventual film, the role of Rico, was first offered to Christopher Walken. The thing that I think it it touches upon, which would have been great for a Judge Dredd movie, is that it was directed by Ridley Scott in his pipe dream world, which obviously that's who you want, considering it's like Blade Runner, but worse. (laughs) And also, the directing role that Danny Cannon turned down to make this film was Die Hard with a Vengeance. So I think all things worked out for the best there. (laughs) It's it's interesting with the whole... Danny Cannon thing anyway, because this being a comic book, it has more in common with what goes on now, where a rookie director makes an independent movie that does quite well, and then immediately Mm. gets picked up to do this big budget tentpole comic book movie. Yeah. And we've had that with Mark Webb. Oh, what's the name of the guy that does the Spider-Man um, Homecoming movies? John. John Watts. Yeah, that's it. And there's there's many, many more, especially within the uh, MCU. And yeah, it kind of feels very similar to that. But because we're in this mid-90s production period where everything's still very much like it was in the 80s. Yeah. You have studios where everything is coming off the back of, say, something like Batman or things that have come before. So you've got things like Batman and Blade Runner and everything. And the sort of macho action movies of the 80s with Stallone and Schwarzenegger and stuff like that. And you have this situation where the studios don't really know what they want. It's different to how we have in the MCU where they have a very rigid formula. This is 
almost the opposite, but we have the same situation of a rookie director yeah. that has no experience with dealing with a big studio or a big star, and he has his own ideas, and that completely clashing. And in a way, this is like a three-pronged issue because we have the studio, who probably wants one thing. You have the star, Stallone, wants another thing. Yep. And then you've got Danny Cannon, the director, who wants to do something that's very close to the tone of the comic books, which is completely at odds with with the other two. For very obvious reasons, because again, the studios didn't know what to do with these comic book properties. They knew that they wanted to make some because Batman had already proved that there was a lots of money to be made in these things. And we had a lot of yeah, odd yeah. comic book movies like we've discussed before, like um, The Phantom and the shadow and stuff like where they and dick tracy where they took a lot of lesser known or older more cult style comic book characters and turned them into movies before the really popular ones which was kind of odd yes yeah uh, in itself so this can almost be bunched into that group uh, of those kind of 90s comic book adaptations i think so yeah sort of pulpy uh, adaptations even though this is kind of more set in the future but it has a lot in common with those where you're dealing with um, a comic book that subject matter and style is going to be very much at odds with what the studio wants. Yeah. Making a movie like this at this particular time, you are setting it up for failure almost immediately before you've even done any work on it because it's just, again, trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. Yeah, I mean, one thing that you can say about the comic book in terms of the aesthetics is that it's so dirty and grimy and violent. Yeah. Um, obviously so. To the point that I would say that each panel feels like one of those ultra-detailed close-ups in Ren and Stimpy. Yeah. Like, it is something that feels both cool and gross at the same time. Like, Mega City 1 is a horrible place. <laughs> and the comic book has that throughout. This film, it's um, it has moments of that. It has flashes of that. And that's clearly canon trying to do something that's closer. But yeah, you have the studio Disney that are after one thing, and like you say, Stallone after another as well. It, there is a bit of an issue there. Yeah. I mean, Stallone wasn't actually the first choice to play Dread either. It was actually uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I am the law. <laughs> I'm the law. Come on. Come on, Rico. Rico. <laughs> Judge Fargo. And, uh, <laughs> and Joe Pesci was actually considered for the role of Fergie. I mean, he was considered for every role like this at that time. Yeah, you want a diminutive sidekick? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm wondering that's because, again, with Richard Donner, because, yeah, he'd done the comic book things, but then he is very heavily associated with the Lethal Weapon movies, which were very successful action movies as well. So combining those two, uh, you can definitely see why they would want Donner and, again, why they would want someone like Pesci, because he was that sidekick character. So... Yeah, it all makes sense on paper. I mean, they might have even gone with someone like Mel Gibson. If Richard Donner had signed oh, up, yeah. they might have gone... Because Mel Gibson's got a chin. Yeah, totally. I could see that. That kind of chiseled jawline. He's got a chin of a strong racist. It's a bit, it's a bit Mad Maxi as well, I suppose. Yeah, the... yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's in an alternative universe somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it just sounds like a complete and utter mess from the word go. I mean, quite frankly, it's astonishing that the film 
that we have is is as good as it is because it sounds like a nightmare waiting to happen because I think it was just the wrong type of film to make at that time, at least in this way, because it was a non-starter for me looking at it on paper because I've read reports like on paper, it looks like it would be a hit. I was like, no, 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 not not in this time period uh, and not for this kind of budget. If it was a low budget kind of film and it was made to be an R-rated film, then maybe, but it's just not what they were going for at all. So yeah, it was kind of always doomed for failure. It was doomed by the fact that they went down the road of having an established star by making it an established star vehicle. Yeah. That's when it failed because once you do that, there comes a lot of stipulations that come with that kind of film, with that kind of tentpole. This needed to be a film made at half the budget with a rising star kind of in the lead. Someone with potential. Yeah. Because those three key figures had such different ideas of what the film should be it ends up being so miserable for all of them because none of them are getting what they want yeah i mean one of the major things in in regards to the film as well is the rating the issues that they face with the rating the studio and stallone wanted a pg-13 they were shooting it with a pg-13 in mind However, when it was first given to the MPAA, according to writer Stephen D'Souza, who I believe is also a producer on the film, it received an NC-17 by the MPAA, and it took five reapplications to them in order to have it reduced to an R rating, so they had to cut the film five times in order to gain just an R rating. Again, this film was supposedly wrote with a PG-13 in mind and then shot with a hard R in mind, clearly. Yeah. And that created problems in regards to contractual obligations to corporate entities such as like McDonald's and Burger King and Mattel. I do actually have a clip from Stephen D'Souza from the documentary In Search of the Last Action Heroes. It's a deleted scene from that that can be found on YouTube on Oliver Harper's account. And in it, he does go into detail as to what they face with regards to contract breaches and uh, facing up to the R rating. So I'll let that run now. So the next scene is robot kill Ergen Pruck now. So I write, you know, the robot, well, Ergen Pruck now backs away into the corner. You see shadows and hear screaming. They had puppeteers on this movie and they made a wonderful robot, if you saw the movie, that was controlled by like nine guys off stage. He had the crew, I don't know where he found the money, that's why the movie went over budget. He made a life-size Jurgen Pruck now that squirted arterial blood when his arms and legs were ripped off and shot that. So I say, I say, Andy, you know, you know, we're really in trouble here with the rating. Oh no, come on, you know, writers don't like it when directors turn their stuff. I go, okay, fine. So meanwhile, they make a toy deal with Kenner, I think, for all the Judge Dredd toys. They make a hamburger deal with Burger King with a Happy Meal with the Judge Dredd figures. They turn the movie in for the rating. It gets rated X for violence. So now they recut the picture. It gets rated X for violence again. They recut the picture one more time. It's rated X. You're only allowed to go in three times. This was literally the last couple of months of uh, Jack Valenti's being the head of the uh, Motion Picture Association. Somehow, you know, Ed Pressman, you know, called in. He saved, Maybe he saved uh, Jack Valenti's life in Vietnam. I don't know what the favor is. He went on bended knee. They gave us one more bite at the apple and we got an R rating. But now, 
you can't have a toy deal. You have a toy deal, but you can't advertise the toys on television. We have a hamburger deal. Burger King says, we can't advertise, you know, there. So Burger King sues the studio. This is all behind the scenes. If, if you had social media at the time, it would have been all over. Burger King sues the studio. Kenner sues the studio. And now the studio is in a panic. How do we advertise this movie? And somebody says, well, it was based on a popular comic book. And I'm going, no, not in America, not in America. And, and so they decide that the advertising campaign is comic book oriented. So the ads were comic book drawings of Sylvester Stallone with a balloon over his head in panels. You know the beginning of, 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 a, of a Marvel movie? It was like, that, that was the ads. So the cognitive dissonance of an R-rated movie, which should have been sold as a tough R-rated movie, was sold as a comic book movie that no child could see. So the toy company, they had to get paid off in the dark. The hammer, they had to destroy the toys, whatever. So yeah, going off the back of that, it's clear that we're in something of a transitional period as well for these types of films because in the 80s it was much more commonplace and there was much more allowance for r-rated films and properties to be marketed towards kids in regards to like toy lines and that kind of thing that's how we ended up with aliens toys and freddy krueger toys and jason Voorhees toys for kids yeah and then that came crashing down towards the end of the 80s where suddenly there was a massive clamp down on that for various reasons and so we're only really like five years out from that period where that decision's been made and it's clear that there's an adjustment period going on for studios but man what a terrible situation to be in but i think also it's a wonderful period of transition in another area Stallone transitioned well <laughs> and did he slowly turn into his mother in that um Visual effects wise, we are in this halfway house period of yeah digital effects and traditional effects merging with each other and each one using the best of both worlds. And I mourn this period because it was all too short. For me, this this movie on a on a visual level is pretty fantastic. Yeah. I'd say it's an embarrassment of riches, in fact. Yeah, it is, yeah. So yeah, you've you've got all that going on. So there's like a little silver lining to all this sort of turmoil because at least that stuff wasn't being disrupted too much and they were still able to get the film out on a technical level to a pretty high standard despite all these issues that they were having. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's just a real odd duck of a film, but because of that, it's born out of its situation and its situation wasn't yeah was never going to be great from the start. I mean, I, I did have a quote from Stallone in which he's uh, talking about director Danny Cannon. Yeah. It sounded like he was in the midst of a nervous breakdown, according to Stallone, as uh, every once in a while he stood up from his director's chair and yelled to everyone with an earshot, fear me, everyone should fear me. Then he'd sit back in his chair as if nothing happened. <laughs> oh my God. And he says that the British crew were taking bets on the director's life expectancy. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it sounds like quite an experience there. Yeah, I mean, again, this is what happens when you take a director who's made one independent film and then you throw him into the lion's den of a big studio picture with a big star. Not everyone can do that. Not everyone can balance those elements and it takes a certain kind of director and a certain amount of experience i think to navigate that because it's you know when we look at making of documentaries and stuff especially especially like things like fluff pieces and things you do not get a full flavor of what it is to make a film on a big budget level 
when you're dealing with that much money. It's an unenviable task, to be honest. If anything, though, I would say what puts Canon in a group of his own, uh, like separate from the likes of directors that are brought on to Marvel films these days yeah, after, yeah. you know, one indie hit, is I think we need more directors that are in the face of adversity on these films to stand up and shout, fear me, everyone should fear me. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think we need more directors having nervous breakdowns making films because... We've got too many yes men that are just going, okay, yeah, whatever, whatever you want, whatever you want, we'll do it. And that, and that's the thing as well. He was a huge fan of the material, which when the MCU hires these rookie directors for doing something completely non-related, they're often not like yeah that invested in in what they're actually doing anyway. It's of course just, not. Yeah, exactly. It's just an opportunity for them, which is fine, but it means there's usually no flair to anything. I mean, and that's because they're operating within those constrictions and they've got much less power over everything anyway they're literally just there to be um more on the lines of, an, of a first ad really <laughs> there's yes, no real yeah, exactly, director yeah. in those films it's more they're the first ad and then the studio kind of has final cut and everything it's like how tv is run where you know the exec is the showrunner yeah and you have a director to come in and handle the day-to-day of directing actors from episode to episode as long as they stick to the established established rules the established bible and the established look it's really the showrunner that's behind everything. That's why it's the world's most expensive TV show. <laughs> exactly. I mean, let's get let, let's get into the film. I have a yeah. few other things that are littered throughout the episode in regards to the making. So, Andy, what is your opinion of Judge Dredd? Yeah, I I actually have quite a a soft spot for this film. Me too. And not to ignore the fact that it is like heavily flawed. But again, like I said, for the visual aesthetic alone and just that feeling it gives you of a, a, a sort of 80s, 90s sci-fi action movie, it, it's something that can't be replicated these days unless you went proper all in on it. I've heard it being described as being overstuffed with elements, which it is, because there's, there's a lot of things that it takes from the comics and tries to, and even invents itself and then shoves them into this sort of 90-minute film. Yeah. And again, even for its goofier elements, there's just things to enjoy. But at the same time, you can recognise that it was a trouble production. I mean, from the opening frames, you know that it's a trouble production because it has a <laughs> an opening narrated scroll. Narrated by James Earl Jones. Yeah, which tells you... Because it's narrated by somebody who's not involved with the film in any other way. Yes, yeah. This is a last-minute post-production decision. (laughs) And to be honest, it's one of those opening crawls that I feel the film does a decent enough job of explaining what these things are anyway. Yeah. It's just that the studio clearly lost faith in audiences being able to keep up. But the film kind of explains all of this in the first 15 minutes anyway yeah it's interesting the fact that they have that crawler then the next sequence explains it to you in a visual way without you having to say anything yeah that's a classic studio mandated sequence because it just reeks of somebody who has no imagination uh going yes we need to put something to explain that to uh me uh what this is (laughs) yeah exactly yeah (laughs) I mean, what I do love about that opening as well, it's the kind of juxtaposition of uh, you have the title, Judge Dredd. You have starring Sylvester Stallone. Open on Rob Schneider. (laughs) (laughs) You know? It's like the cold open is just Rob Schneider like, hey, am I going to Heavenly Havens? You know? (laughs) Is that my place over there with all the hot chicks? It's interesting as well that the... uh director's opening credits title which is before the crawl but is almost like a prototype um 
Marvel, Marvel opening, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even with the Al Silvestri score as yeah. well, because he scored the original Marvel Sting as well for a short time. I think they used Al Silvestri. And yeah, you can see there and then in that first opening minutes, the butting of heads between what Danny Cannon wants to do and what the studio wants. I mean, in the first 10 minutes, we do have multiple violent gun deaths, electrocution. Yeah. We see dismemberment as well. There are arms littered on the floor in one scene as well. Yeah. I, I can just imagine the execs at Burger King and Disney looking at it going, oh my <laughs> God, what do we do with this? Also, James Remars is in it for like an uncredited cameo? Was he on day release? <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah. <laughs> I think this is the, the only type of role he could get. Henchman won <laughs> for yeah, quite yeah. a time. <laughs> it was still a few years to go until Dexter. Yeah. I mean, th- I think this is maybe the, the elephant in the room as well that we haven't really... Uh, discussed because i watched this film with my wife last night and we'd only got about 10 15 minutes into it and she said um this feels a little bit like robocop yes (laughs) i paused the movie and went well (laughs) (laughs) there's a story here (laughs) yeah um it's a classic case of the inspiration looking like the knockoff because it was made as a film after the kind of knockoff yeah Uh, because although i love robocop it heavily borrows elements from the judge dread comic books and we're using the word heavily rather lightly there yeah (laughs) it very heavily borrows from 2018 and robocop really is paul verhoeven's way of making judge dread just without the name yeah i know what i love robocop yeah you you can't deny that it's uh more than plagiarized many elements from that comic book series robocop coming out actually put the kibosh on a judge dread film being made in the 80s yeah yeah and i also think because of that there is some justification for dread taking off his helmet as well yeah or else it would just be a robocop clone in the eyes of many critics and audiences i mean 2000 ad was it was a cult comic book magazine over here anyway yeah i know it had its audience in america but we're not talking about marvel or dc or dark horse or anything like that no we're talking about something that's really niche when people look at this they're going to see a robocop clone yeah if they had uh gone the full whack with his helmet on i think yeah obviously the helmet came off for other reasons mainly stallone wanted his beautiful face to be seen once more <laughs> yeah it's interesting with 2000 ND because um it's very much a British comic book brand. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it kind of felt like 2000 AD was set up to be a kind of successor to the Eagle, right down to the fact that I looked at the cover of the first issue of 2000 AD, and in the top right corner it says, The New Damned Air, as a <laughs> continuation. So I feel like it was set up to replace the eagle comic book or in some way be like that but maybe be a grittier more adult version of that yeah you know you had things like the beano and the dandy and stuff but on the flip side you had stuff like the eagle and again 2000 ad was within those lines and and yeah very satirical because britain has a strong tradition of satirical humor much more than the u.s in fact at that time i think it was almost non-existent in the u.s so even the the idea of paul verhoeven who was a european making robocop and adding all that satire into it yeah would be a very new thing and it's because it came from this 
very British source material, European director, you know, satire is a very European thing. And yeah, so that would have looked so fresh and new in Robocop. And it's, that's why you've got this this issue with Judge Dredd where it's it looks like a copy when in fact it was the inspiration. Yeah, it was the OG. And that's the other thing I find interesting with the, the 2012 version because I know that that's one of the things that that version lacks is a satirical edge. And I'm not 100% sure why because it actually would have made more sense to make that a satirical film because it was so much further removed from Robocop. I would say the 2012 version, it has moments. Yeah. It has fleeting moments of satire. For example, the moment where Judge Dredd gives the homeless man who's simply sitting in a doorway a week in the cube or whatever it is for simply being homeless. Like, as moments like that way, he's really getting into the fascism of this time and place and these people but they are fleeting moments it's far more interested in being a straight action film yeah it's a little bit po-faced i mean that is something that if they were to make another one and i really do hope they do because i do like yeah yeah it's got it's a property that's got so much potential yeah really does i just hope that they add a that satiric edge and i feel like as well it's still made by people with a lot of love for judge dread but it's almost like they're scared not well not scared but maybe it's a studio or that kind of thing but it's just holding itself back from going that full distance yeah and i think in a way that is one of the things that attracted stallone to the project but because he's an american his idea of what the humorous elements were going to be you know how he interpreted it is actually very different from what it actually is Mm -hmm. because i know he was pushing for a lighter more comedic tone but a more US comedy style. Why does he always seem to get these things wrong? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> with Beverly Hills Cop... I don't know, I don't know Gareth. I don't know. I, I just, you know I'm just here. It's, <laughs> it seems from property to property, he always just decides the wrong thing. Like, he joined Beverly Hills Cop and was involved in that for a time. He turned it into this, like, really gritty crime thriller... That eventually became Cobra. Yeah. I think it ended with Axel Foley driving on a train tracks, uh, playing chicken with a fucking train. Which, to be honest, the train's going to win, mate. Was it the blackface as well? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, they should have really wrote in the script that, it, that they were going to be changing the race. <laughs> he'd, look, he'd look like um, Frank Zappa from Joe's Garage. Yeah. <laughs> Starring... Sylvester Stallone as Axel Jolson. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Mommy! <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and so it's like he joins Beverly Hills Cop, tries to make it as R-rated as possible, and then he joins Judge Dredd and tries to make it as PG-13 as possible. Yeah. He's got his wires all crossed. As well, for me, there's an element of, in this film, them trying to recreate and almost be a spiritual sequel to Demolition Man. Yes, yeah, yeah, I can see that. As well, yeah. like, because the costumes look quite similar. Mm-hmm. You've got Rob Schneider there. <laughs> <And> the, <laughs> the whole tone of the film feels very similar to um, to Demolition Man in that way. In that it's a Republican wet dream. Yeah. I mean, talking about the costumes, I'm glad you mentioned that. I know that the costume is very faithful to Dread in the comic book in many sense. It's got the massive shoulder pads. Yeah. It's obviously, uh, we have the design by Versace as well mm-hmm. for the uh, Judge Dread costume. However, I will say, there's a scene in this film where a lot of judges get shot and assassinated in many different ways. Yeah. I think they probably should have designed their armor to cover more than just their shoulders. <laughs> 
and their dick and balls. <laughs> it's like there's a lot of space there, guys. Yeah. That is just completely free to be shut to fuck. Yeah. How about these internal organs, the heart, the lungs, all of that? Nope. No, we're all right. The shoulders and the balls, that's all we've got in mind. My dick's safe. That's all that matters. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just imagining a, a funeral for one of these judges and they're going, oh, my poor boy, shot to pieces. And then one of them goes, well, at least his dick was intact. Yeah, we've saved his dick. It's in his jar. Yeah. <laughs> we can rebuild him. We have the technology. Yeah. <laughs> well, they do have the technology. It's in the film. I know, exactly. <laughs> I think the other thing that sets this film in a time and place is that Blade Runner-esque cityscape See, you say blade runner i say super mario brothers the movie <laughs> no yeah blade but runner <laughs> we were still in a time where almost every futuristic film wanted to replicate that look yeah and it's no coincidence that the production designer of this film uh was nigel phelps because he'd also was the production designer for batman yeah again batman is a film that takes heavy inspiration from Blade Runner in its uh, presentation of its um, urban landscape. So you only have to look a, a couple of years later where you have the fifth element, again, sort of recreating that Blade Runner-esque feel. And I think it's something that, that died out not long after that, but I think for a good 10, 15 years, yeah. if you wanted a, a futuristic city, it was going to have to look like Blade Runner. And I have no problem with that. Yeah, it was perfect for me. That that was exactly my jam. Yes, yeah, one of those things that you do want to see more of. So even though it's slightly derivative, I have no problem with it because I just love that kind of thing. So <laughs> I would say what this film does as well is it definitely is very Blade Runner, but I feel like it also expands on it as yeah, well because yeah. this is an expansive film. It takes place over a lot of different sets, a lot of different locations, and all of them are like real. And when I say real, I mean in a studio built sets kind yeah. of thing. We don't have CGI extensions. We have a few matte extensions, yeah. and we have a couple of really good matte paintings as well. But yeah, this is like a living, breathing city. And I, I love, like, I noticed this viewing especially. There's a few sets as well where they've clearly, like, uh, redressed, struck down half a set and rebuilt and that kind mm -hmm. of thing to repurpose it. And I, I, I love that level of filmmaking. They really make the most of the production design with Judge Dredd. And it's, I will say, in the same way that Jaws works 50% because of John Williams' music in Spielberg's eyes, Judge Dredd works for me because of the, the production design, because of those sets, because of the practical effects as well are fantastic. I want to talk about the ABC Warrior for oh, a moment as yeah. well, because that is just beautiful. And it is something that I hate to be that guy again, that old fella, uh, you know, old man yells at cloud moment, but we wouldn't get anything like that now. It would move too much. Well, I was, yeah. I, I was actually thinking about this in the shower this morning because I was thinking with that ABC robot, you can actually interpret that one as being, it's so good because it's not actually in effect. It's actually a real thing. Yes, yeah. Because that's the thing with, with CGI. No matter how good it is, you'd have to be getting to like James Cameron way of water level effects to make that even look as good and you would have spent way more money on than actually building the damn thing but it's not actually an effect in a way because they built it it's a real thing therefore it's yeah. not an effect anymore 
there's no uncanny valley or having to win over the audience that this is a real thing. It's the real thing. They built a fucking robot. It's there, so, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, and that, that's I think that's the thing that people forget. They built the fucking thing. It's the real thing. It's not an effect anymore, in a way. <laughs> and it's, it's how they made it harder for themselves as well by showing this, yeah. this huge expansive space in its waste. So it like forces them to really think about how they're making it. Um, how it's going to move as well because it's not just something that you can throw a person or a couple of people in like you know yeah. could you imagine them standing on each other's shoulders like a couple of kids in a coat <laughs> you know <laughs> but uh yeah it's like it's not something you can cheat that way the only way to do it is to build the fucking thing yeah and that's what they do and it really just works it has so much character and it has so much screen presence the rock wishes he had this much screen presence <laughs> <laughs> yeah I feel like they should have uh, done a film with that because they must have spent loads of money on it. But yeah, uh, they should have made, put it in another film. Absolutely. <laughs> like, I don't know why because this is something Rock that and Robots. The who, movie. <laughs> 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 this is something that people who didn't even like the movie talk about. They talk about how good that looked. I'm surprised that we haven't had movement on an ABC Warrior movie of its own. Really, that's based on is it Hammerstein? That's one of the main characters in uh, the yeah yeah because that's this year again like because Danny Cannon's such a a fan of the 2000 AD comics he was able to take other cool things from that comic book brand and use it within this film the great I think the the wonderful thing about it is because it takes it has all this old school stuff but then it has the new technology like the digital compositing so yeah it does similar things to what they have been doing but because you don't have those optical artifacts it's vastly improved like that that bike chase hasn't really aged no no it looks great yeah and there's even a very brief use of digital doubles in one shot oh wow where they swoop down towards the ground in that in that chase that's all digital doubles so that's a very early use of that that technology so i didn't know that that's really cool the, the stuff in here on a practical level with the mean machine where i'm like jesus how do they even do that like that's an incredible piece of makeup it truly is i mean again they they did the right thing as well by going to chris cunningham who was an artist for 2000 AD as well, brought him on board, have him design these characters for the film and be part of that process. I mean, Chris Cunningham was like a huge influence to me growing up as well. I loved his, his art style. And I continue to do so. And it's such a shame that he no longer works in the, in the film industry anymore. It seems like he was jaded by it for some reason or another, but it's just not something he went back to between Mean Machine and the ABC warrior. It's just such a showcase of his talents as well as a designer, but that Mean Machine, the prosthetics for it and the performance as well is just fucking brilliant. It's, it's beautiful. (laughs) I think, I think the other thing with that, and I think, again, this is like the old school mentality because it is real. One, it's there. You don't have to put any effort into trying to sell it. If it looks good on in camera, it's going to look good, whatever. Whereas a lot of things nowadays are made just to look cool. Yeah. That makeup really tells a story. Mm-hmm. It tells a story about what life is beyond the yeah. wall of Mega City 1. And you can piece together in your mind what it would have been like being that particular individual and, and what horrific things they would have undergone to become that creature just simply to cling on to life but the fact that it's got like an endoskeleton 
creeping through its flesh and stuff like what has gone on mm-hmm. there across it's like collarbones yeah and it's riddled throughout it it's like wolverine gone wrong yeah <laughs> yeah it's just it's it's just terrific and just just ridiculously interesting to look at if you just pause it but like you say it's those moments where design tells a story where you don't really have to say i mean i know that there is a couple of things said about it but when you have people that trust in the design, that trust in the visual world building, and you clearly have a lot of people involved in this film that are really interested in that aspect of filmmaking, that's where this film like succeeds in spades for me. There are moments like that that are just like perfection. <laughs> I do want to say, though, there is one moment where the uh, ABC warrior, its limitations become apparent, and it's not because of anything to do with the practical effects, anything to do with the visual effects. It's more so to do with the blocking. It seems at one point that everybody towards the end just kind of moves themselves into clobbering distance of the APC warrior. And there's this moment where about three people in a row get themselves in position to just be whacked. And it made me think that because (laughs) this is happening without the ABC warrior really moving from the spot, did it go to the uh, Steven Seagal school of action acting? (laughs) (laughs) You know, that whole idea where Steven Seagal's like, I'm just going to do this scene and I'm going to take out these four or five guys. I'm just going to do it sitting down, if that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) I just do it as... And then, and then the down. It's like the ABC warrior for just this moment in the film turns into Steven Seagal. Yeah. Another thing we need to talk about, really, is Stallone. Yeah. I think he makes a great entrance in terms of like the visuals of it. Yeah. But one thing that I thought he would be better at that he kind of flubs his lines on a bit is just simply shouting, which I've never really had an issue with him doing before. But when he speaks to the block and he's talking to them to stand down, it sounds like he's in the midst of an asthma attack. I'm the law. It's like there's an uncomfortable gap between every other word. Yeah. Just surrender. It sounds like almost like that uh, guy from uh, Mad Max 2. (laughs) Just walk away. Yeah. What is your opinion of Stallone in this role? I think it's a classic case of someone thinking they're in a different movie to what else is going on. Because he has in his own head this lighter-toned comedic movie. Yeah, I mean, Judge Dredd shouldn't crack jokes, really. Like, that's the antithesis of Dredd. He's deadly, deadly serious. Yeah, it's it's interesting that this film is called Judge Dredd, but the Judge Dredd bit is kind of missing, really. Yeah, and the thing is as well, he, he does have the look. Like, he has the chin for it. Yeah, yeah. And as I've mentioned earlier, I don't mind that he takes off his helmet, but it's just those moments where, like, he's he cracks jokes. And that... For the large part of the film, it does work for me, but he's almost a little bit too soft as Dread. Yeah. And it's clear to me that he's trying to make the character too likable, but really as a like example of a fascist dictatorship, he shouldn't be likable. <laughs> yeah, and I find it's really at odds with what he does in the first like five minutes of his performance when he's got the helmet on and he's shooting up place yeah yeah being very fascist and then he's like yeah i'm a nice guy i'm a lovable yeah yeah exactly yeah it kind of miss i think just misses the point of what what it's supposed to be and by the end he's like yeah everybody makes mistakes maybe shouldn't have sent rob schneider down but yeah it's all right yeah like the message of the film being that there's too much power for one man to have it's like no never should anybody in judge dread really have that (laughs) that that notion (laughs) 
because the the whole idea is like this is a, a fascist world run by these walking judiciary systems. They are incredibly fascist in and of themselves. And the reason that the world remains such a miserable place is a symptom of the way that it's run by these individuals. Yeah. Only they don't realize it. And the idea is that this place doesn't change because it's run by fascists. That's obviously miss, been missed because, you know, they're, they're trying to sell it to kids. <laughs> you know, yeah. you can't really put, put <laughs> you know, nationalism on the front of a McDonald's box. But even so, I think Stallone works for the most part. But as I mentioned earlier, it's a double-edged sword because would we get the world realized in such a way with so much of what i love about this film if we didn't have stallone and that budget involved yeah you know that's the thing isn't it that's what you've got to take and i think i would take stallone in order to get this world because i've kind of alluded at it throughout but i'm just going to put it i really like this film i did like it back then i do like it now i understand that it doesn't really work as a judge dread movie but taken on its own merit it works for the most part for me one place that it doesn't work though is Rob Schneider. <laughs> I didn't mind it when I was a kid, but I forgot like how distracting he is as a presence in this film once he becomes a major part. He feels like he's a Saturday morning cartoon sidekick yeah. that's in this universe that doesn't fit him. Yeah, he feels like he comes from Judge Dredd, the animated series. <laughs> yeah, like... exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, although I did see a fantastic clip online that made his inclusion in a film just so worthwhile and that was a clip of him on the first day of shooting falling down some stairs and smashing his face on the floor <laughs> so you know it swings him roundabouts. Yeah. <laughs> although we do get away with it for a while he does disappear for a good like 50 minutes of the film and this is at a time when having a, a wise cracking sidekick was the thing that you had to do I kind of almost forget sometimes how far back Rob Schneider goes because it's like he's just yeah he's just in things whether you like it or not surf ninjas yeah <laughs> that's how far he goes he's supposed to be playing like some 14 15 year old cool surfer dude <laughs> and he's clearly like about 30 and he's like hey guy <laughs> so I was like if you are hanging about with these kids you should belong in a register my friend <laughs> I just find it weird how many things he's in, given how little he has a grasp of comedy. <laughs> That's his whole shtick. I know. It's just bizarre, because like, I'm just watching this like, that that could have been funny if done by somebody else. Yeah. That could have been funny if done by somebody else. Yeah, that could have been funny if done by somebody else. Because uh, <laughs> he just doesn't have, he doesn't have the talent for it. Like no, he just, he's, no, he not, he's not a natural comedian. He really isn't, and I don't understand. All of his lines are delivered exactly the same over and over again. The same timing, the same ill timing, the yeah. same kind of like cadence. It's like there's no variety to it whatsoever. It's just the same thing. He's hitting you over the head with the same one joke thing that he has. Yeah, delivered in the same one joke way that he has. I mean, he even gets as far as I mean, who doesn't love a male rape joke in the mm. PG thirteen movies? You know. <laughs> Over the 90s. And I know, I think he, he was originally meant to be um, killed off in the last act. And that's why they have the whole... They never really um, end that whole arc about him judging that character. 
and it was in yeah. the script apparently and uh, i think they probably filmed it in it because that last shot of him on the stretcher is so reshooty yeah it's just been thrown in at the last minute if you look at the wide shots he's not in the in the wide shots i don't even know geographically speaking where he is in relation to no. any of the characters in the scene and they've just got him probably in a pub car park yeah <laughs> on a stretcher they put a bit of card in front of it to be the background <laughs> And just shot it in ultra close-up. It's like, oh shit, we forgot about him. He was, you know, he'd been shot, hadn't he, and stuff. So he was uh, like half dead the last time we saw him. So we'll put him on a stretcher, say, hey, he's not dead. You can have a couple of funny lines that will just intercut with the rest of the scene, even though it has absolutely no relationship with what else is going on. And yeah, there we are. Jobs are good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I will also say, as I've mentioned with this film, it is a give-and-take thing. You've got to take the bad in order to get the good because this is one of those films where that's the way you have to justify it. We'll look at Rob Schneider and what he takes away from the film. But on the other hand, in regards to the casting, we have the likes of Max von Sydow and Jürgen Prochnow as judges in this film. However, there is an issue that they have with this film, and that is having people who are heavily accented refer to the main conspiracy as the Janus Project all the way through, because it just sounds like they're saying anus. (laughs) When Jürgen Prochnow first announced it, I wrote down what he says. He says uh, something along these lines. It's like, give me war, and then the people will have to turn to me and to Janus. Yeah. And all I can think of my mind is, is that his friend Hugh, you know? <laughs> <laughs> they will have to turn to me and my Hugh Janus. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, they give the role of main fascist to a German actor as well, so... <laughs> yeah, who coincidentally is the German dub for Sylvester Stallone mm-hmm. in a lot of Stallone's mm-hmm. movies. This film has a lot of people who are like really good shouters. You know, Armand Asante is really going for it with this film yeah. as well. Like, he gets criticised for this, but I fucking love how camp and over the top and really going for it he is in this film. You know, we have Jürgen Prochnow as well, who can really belt it out. And obviously Sylvester Stallone as well, even though he's in the midst of an asthma attack. Yeah, This is a film that if you are turned on by men shouting constantly, my God, you are in heaven with this film. There's one, I mean, there's a big visual thing with Dredd and, and Rico that we haven't mentioned, which is the blue contact lenses. It's like the Irishman all over again. Yeah, and I'm wondering why Max von Sydow, they have the blue contacts to match his blue eyes. Yeah. But why didn't they do it the other way around and have him have brown eyes so that Armand and Stallone just keep their natural eye colour because they've both got brown eyes because they're both Italian. <laughs> I think it's probably because... Blue is a more striking colour. But also, why couldn't they get an Italian actor to be (laughs) Judge Fargo? Because it would just be way easier because this very Northern European man, this Swedish man, has uh, cloned (laughs) two very Italian-looking individuals. (laughs) Do you mean this Dolmio identity was crafted in a laboratory? (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, it, it doesn't quite work for the plot considering they're supposed to be clones. Just lab technicians hovering around babies with Dolmiog and Pasta going, ooh, you want Italian? <laughs> Absorb your identity. <laughs> Mamma mia! Oh. Mamma Maglione. <laughs> you hate the pineapple pizza. 
Yeah, it's Max von Sydow, so I can understand why they would want him there. But yeah, yeah, it doesn't quite work for the plot. And again, you have that issue with them both having to wear these ridiculously blue contact lenses, which they could have gotten better contact lenses, I am sure. Do you think they had to share the same contact lenses? Yeah. <laughs> like, just swap them in, go, it's your turn. <laughs> they look like those, you know, in, in joke shops, you get those eyes. They do! Like the bubble, bubble eyes. Things. They, yeah, they don't real at all. I'm not sure that's what they were going for, to try and make them look a bit weird. Yeah. Them not quite being natural-born human sort of thing. So maybe that maybe there's a thing in that that's got lost, but it does give them a very weird look. It does. I suppose, so. like you say, it's that, that unnatural-born thing that they kind of like justify it with. But I don't know if that's just like a happy coincidence, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I forgot to mention this as well when we were talking about the ABC Warrior. And while we're speaking about Rico as well, there's a the great scene in which Rico goes to the pawn shop yeah. and first sees the ABC warrior. It seems like he buys it from a pawn shop owner who's played by Bernard Manning. <laughs> because the first thing he says is, like, hey, it's non-functional, like my wife, you know, I'm all right. You know, <laughs> it's a proper take my wife. I wish somebody would <laughs> kind of joke. But there's a moment as well where Rico shoots the pawn shop owner, killing him, and then brings the ABC warrior to life. And the ABC warrior is asking for its owner. And so he picks up the cigar from the dead guy and kind of like pretends that it's him. Wouldn't the ABC warrior just see the dead guy on the floor? <laughs> Suddenly it's like, oh, it's been tricked by the cunning disguise of a single cigar. That's the only identifying feature that this robot had of my previous owner. Yeah. So. Owner, cigar guy. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's his cigar, all right. It, it smells right. It must be him. <laughs> Every other identifying feature is, is wrong, but he's got that cigar, so it must be him. <laughs> always like that, but even as a kid, I always noticed that, like, that's a, that's a weird thing to have just as an identifying feature for a robot. Yeah. Another thing as well that has to be mentioned in regards to Stallone. I meant to mention this earlier as well. I have never seen a film that tries to set up a catchphrase <laughs> quite as ham-fisted as this film does. But the whole, I knew you'd say that, yeah, has got to be one of the most, like the worst attempts at trying to do a catchphrase. Yeah. Anytime I see a film that tries to force that kind of thing, it always fails. And the reason is, is because I'll be back. Everybody's trying to do I'll be back. That's what all of these action stars want. But the reason I'll be back works was because it wasn't a catchphrase. Yeah, it was, one, it was said once. <laughs> it was said once in The Terminator. It was an impactful line in an impactful scene. Yeah. And it was memorable. That's why it became a catchphrase. It happened by accident. That's how these things happen. Yeah. You can't manufacture them. But, oh my gosh, does Stallone try. D'Souza should know this as well because... Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker, is also another example of a single-use line that's become a catchphrase. Yeah. I mean, even think of Star Wars, um, I am your father and all that. Just one line. And I have a bad feeling about this. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. These are things that happen by accident. It's not just, like, constant repetition to the point of absurdity that does this. That's insane. <laughs> Although, if they did one go for any catchphrase for this film... I do wish that they had gone for fear me. Everyone should fear me. <laughs> That's Danny Cannon's catchphrase. I mean, his catchphrase should just be I am the law anyway, like which it, it is. That's perfect. Oh, well, 
Uh, I think the other thing we haven't mentioned is that climax and what's missing from it. Because you cut from the clone facility to the top of the Statue of Liberty, and then we get to that climax, and then Rico's offed. And then Jess goes, hey, what happened to the clones? <laughs> I was yeah. like, well, <laughs> there's a scene missing. <laughs> <laughs> they could have simply put up a black card on the screen and just with scene missing written in captions. I have no idea why they cut that sequence because I think there's stills of it going around the shop. Yeah, th- there were. There were stills in 2000 AD as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing is as well, in the film itself, even though they've cut it out, they still build up to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, you, you can't really cut it out. The characters still keep referring to it and he makes a whole point of they're not ready yet. I want them now! You know, yeah. that kind of thing. And then it doesn't happen and then when it, we kind of get back to it, they're just all over the floor. No, but do we even see that shot? Actually? No, no. I think they justify it. It's because the last time you see that room, there's like an explosion or something like that. So yeah. they've obviously gone, right, that justifies them being dead because there's an explosion in that last shot. And we can just cut to that. I'm not sure whether that's part of the whole MPAA cuts they had to do. Yeah, because they are kind of like gory to look at anyway. Yeah. The like, intestines are still on show, even though there's no actual blood. There's intestines are on show. You can see their vital organs and that kind of thing. That's the thing as well with these films. Curiously, the studio are desperate to cut it down so it's appropriate for 10-year-olds. But as a 10-year-old, I fucking loved Gordy films. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I loved Robocop. I know I get it that you can't, that means it's more so about like the breach of contracts, that it's about Happy Meals, that it's about toys, and it's about Mattel and Hasbro. But man, kids love gore and swear words and sex. Yeah. That's what we're in for. <laughs> I'm also wondering whether it's a screening thing as well, because I don't know what the thresholds are now, but if your film's under a certain runtime, you can get an extra screening in is sort of that 100 minute mark is that a threshold Mm. because this film is like 96 minutes with the credits on it's a very short film probably zips by considering how much stuff there is shoved into it it's very very brief and yeah it does feel shorter than it should be yeah yeah it does feels like it probably should be about like 110 minutes or something like that and they've cut quite a lot of material out of it yeah it is one of those films where to me it gets shorter as it goes along like yeah it becomes more rushed the longer we go into the film i'd say the first 50 minutes feel as is and as was intended and then as it moves more into action as the action heavy second half comes along it becomes more rushed cut to pieces essentially and then we get to a finale where everything's a blur yeah i still have a lot of love for things that happen in this especially the scene in which rob schneider's face hits the floor over and over and over it sorry that was just me on youtube earlier (laughs) Um, yeah if you haven't seen that clip it's on the making of like they used it as a main feature point of the making of of rob schneider talking about the scene in which his head hits the floor on his first day (laughs) for anybody that doesn't like rob schneider it's just perfection (laughs) but but yeah it, it does seem to get more rushed as it goes along essentially as the action comes into it, and it's clear like that's where the MPAA are like, well, this is where it all needs to go from. Although, they still get the cannibals. But it is weird because, yeah, you have all that other stuff with the cannibals, but then the whole film's building up to that moment. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> they cut it out. And it makes the confrontation with Rico feel really easy as well. Like, it, there's not much to it. Like, the whole thing with Rico is he's a smart villain in this world. Yeah. He's presented as being one who's outsmarted everybody. He's one step ahead of everyone. And he's not just a physical threat. 
He's one who will outsmart Dread and play him at his own game. And then by the end of it, it's just like, eh, oh, you got me. Yeah. It's such an e- easy climax because there's no sense of hardship. Yeah. The, the climax is won too easily, definitely. And it's because that sequence is just missing. <laughs> it's just Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just because scenes are missing. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those films that I would be very interested in seeing an extended cut version of it. Obviously never going to happen. No, Who it's knows Disney. if that footage even <laughs> exists anymore? No. Yeah. Yeah, this is a Disney movie, guys. <laughs> well. I mean, that, that's something we haven't mentioned as well. It's a Hollywood picture. It's a Disney yeah. movie. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, just to say, despite all of that, I still have a lot of fondness for this film. Yeah. It is a bit Paul Verhoeven-esque. It's clearly taken inspiration from Robocop, which took major inspiration from Judge Dredd. But I think it's one of those kind of films as well that does it pretty well, even though it doesn't have the satirical edge or that kind of thing. Yeah. But it does it pretty well. And at the end of the day, despite all its, of its faults, despite Rob Schneider, despite the bad editing, despite Rob Schneider, <laughs> I would still give this like a very strong three out of five, you know? Yeah. And actually as well, I would have no problem watching this with my kids either. It's, it's violent, but it's like comic booky. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, But yeah, I understand. I looked on Letterboxd just before I started recording just to see what my friends thought of this film and what other reviewers think. And they don't like it. Mm. Oh God, they don't like it. Mm. Everybody's like two stars, one and a half, all that kind of thing. And I'm sat here like, I liked it when I was 10. I like it now. What's wrong with me? (laughs) (laughs) Rob Schneider. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it is. I mean, that, that recycled food robot has more... Uh, comic chops than <laughs> Rob Schneider with its like limited vocabulary like I love the fact when it goes uh, try recycle food it's good for the environment and okay for you <laughs> it's yeah. like maybe somebody should try a Rob Schneider-less cut of this film <laughs> yeah just green screen him out or if you could do like an AI version of the film where you replace him with Joe Pesci and Joe Pesci's voice yeah. See how it plays then. <laughs> but have him appear as Marv from Home Alone. Yeah, or, or Leo. <laughs> okay, so that's what we thought about Judge Dredd. But it's time for us to look at what other people think of the film. That means it's time to look at the stats and facts. So I'm going to hand it to you, Andy, and you're going to tell me all about how the critics uh, receive this film. So, Judge Dredd, 1995 has a tomato meter reading of 22%. (laughs) 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 That that reminds me of that time when Rotten Tomatoes started doing those um, little videos where it's like a big build-up to the the percentage. And I think it was Batman vs. Superman where it was like, Big, big build-up, and I was like, 14%. Yeah, I I watched the Justice League one. I watched that one live, and they were really bigging it up, and I was like, whoa, 40%. Well, it's not as bad as Batman v Superman. (laughs) So 22% then, eh? And that's based on 54 reviews, because obviously we can't really be fair to this film on Rotten Tomatoes, because this film came out many hundreds of years before Rotten Tomatoes. And uh, it's got an average rating of 4 out of 10. Mm. And uh, the critics' consensus is Judge Dredd wants to be both a legitimate violent action flick and a parody of one, but director Danny Cannon fails to find the necessary balance to make it work. 
or in other words, Danny Cannon was made to not find the necessary balance. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and yeah, the audience score is thirty percent. So not that much better. Yeah, like you were saying before, it's not it's not a well loved movie amongst uh, audiences, and it's got an average rating of that on there of. 2.7 out of 5. Which, I know that they normally come in higher, but that's still quite low for that. It's uh, it's IMDb score is also 5.6 out of 10, so kind of like that middle ground. And yeah. the review from Mr. Ebert says, Stallone survives it, but his supporting cast, including an uninvolved Joan Chen and a tremendously intense Jürgen Prochnow, isn't well used. Only Asante as the rogue judge who frames his brother holds up under the material. Although the movie doesn't exploit the brother angle, maybe because that would have involved dialogue of more than one sentence at a time. (laughs) And he gave the film two out of four. Which is actually one of the more favourable reviews. (laughs) Yeah. Again, yeah, we are definitely in the minority in our appreciation of this film. In regards to the box office, just to frame this against a budget, the budget for Judge Dredd was $90 million dollars. Domestically, it made a, and that's in the US, it made a total of $34 million. And overall, it made a total of $113 million at the box office. Now, the top 10 that are opened up against on release, this was on June the 30th, 1995. So, this is a peak summer slot for that year. Number one was Apollo 13. With $25 million, and that was at, yeah, as I say, that was at number one. That was its first week of release. You said that sounded like it was a, a Spanish film about a chicken. Uh, Apollo. <laughs> Apollo. Apollo. Chicken in the chicken house, number 13. <laughs> Apollo 13. Number two was Pocahontas, and uh, number three was Batman Forever. Number four was Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Yeah. Oh my God, it got beat by Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Yeah. Number five was Judge Dredd. Number six was Congo. Number seven was The Bridges of Madison County. Number eight was Casper. Nine, Braveheart. And number 10 was the film we mentioned earlier, Die Hard with a Vengeance. Now, one of the films I actually looked at separately as well, once I saw this top 10, was Congo. Because... Congo was in its fourth week of release yeah. and came in at number six, just behind yeah. Judge Dredd. Well, just behind, not in terms of the millions, but just behind in terms of places. But fourth week of release, and it made $66 million up until this point. Yeah. Judge Dredd only went on to make $34 million yeah. at the box office. It was beat by Congo. Although Pong, uh, oh, Pongo, although Congo Pongo. was, um, <laughs> it's because I was saying Congo was PG thirteen, wasn't it? So yeah, uh, that may account for that. And also, it had that you um, got the Jurassic Park Michael yeah. Crichton thing. Yeah, they really heavily marketed that film to be a because uh, this was the in the days before there were no other Jurassic Park films. I don't think they'd even announced Lost World at that point. No. So they really marketed it as a spiritual sequel to Jurassic Park, yeah. which it is anything but. Um, but they really uh, mismarketed that And they film. really amped up the apes. They fooled a lot of people uh, into watching that film, I think. Yeah, they did. Which is yeah. probably why it's at number six in its fourth week. So. <laughs> that is definitely on the cards for us to cover, for sure. Oh, yeah. But yeah, that is a packed week of release as well. And you've got a lot of films, even films that finished above it, that are just simply enjoying success. Yeah. But the, the big shock there for me is that it was beat by Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. 
which I know was big at the time as yeah. well, but I did not think that they were bigger than Sylvester Stallone as a box office draw. But then, yeah, it's because it's an R-rated film in that summer slot. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering whether this was the time when R-rated movies in summer slots started to be not a thing anymore, because they were a big draw in the early 90s and in the 80s, and maybe at this point the pendulum started to swing. They really wanted to have that family-friendly market, which is obviously what they were pushing for, but they didn't get that. Maybe Yeah, I think the release slot for this was a, a huge mistake. Yeah as well they, they shouldn't have released it at this point because it's not it's not a summer movie it's a very dark kind of even in its kind of toned down aspect it's a very dark more wintry film yeah i'd say so as well i mean like one of the things he said was uh even though it doesn't rain in the film they wet all of the sets all of the time so it yeah. has that kind of damp look to it because they shot at shepperton studios in the uk because the weather is so temperamental here they wanted to be able to shoot regardless of whether the set was wet yeah. or not. So they watered it down constantly. And yeah. it does have that look to it as well. As well, just to summarise, I'm certainly in the minority looking at the stats and facts, looking how the film was received. The only thing I will say is it's got an IMDb rating of 5.6, which I think has gone up over the years. Yeah. So maybe there is some sort of minor fan base for this film out there, of which I consider myself a mild part of as well. I will go to bat for Judge Dredd and say it's far better than people give it credit for. It has its issues, and your appreciation may depend on your ability to look past those issues. Yeah. But what is there is fucking amazing. (laughs) And bravo to the British technical crew behind this film, because, boy, do they pull out all the stops for Judge Dredd. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see, other than, obviously, what it does with the... With the source material, like, is it that Rob Schneider factor that's really holding this film back? Is that what it is? Mm. And again, it, it still takes things from the comic books that even the 2012 film doesn't do. Yeah, yeah, it does. It's a, it's a more faithful realisation of Mega City 1, in my opinion. Yeah, because in that one, it just feels more like the game for that District 9, Johannesburg-style yeah. thing. Because obviously they did shoot in South Africa, didn't they? Um, they did, with the same within the same studio space with a lot of the same technical people involved. Yeah. But it feels a bit too much like a they're ripping off that style, which is fine because again, this is ripping off Blade Runner. But I don't know, it's a bit too I don't know, bit too dry and stoic for me. And again, it really comes to life in those slow mo sequences. And it is, you know, there's nothing wrong. With it. It's a decent film, but it's not a. I I don't find it a particularly memorable film. I'm definitely more positive for that film, but I still think we have that kind of like Alien Three situation that we've talked about before, where the best version of this film exists between two cuts. It exists between two films. Yeah. I feel yeah. like if you take um, the uh, like approach to Judge Dredd as a character, um, their approach to the action of the new Dredd, but then take the world building and the approach to the practical effects and that kind of thing from yeah. Judge Dredd 1995, there's a fucking blow the doors off the uh, bloody car kind of film. <laughs> <laughs> between them. Yeah, and I know there was supposed to be some sort of like 2000 AD TV series tentatively announced in 2018, but that's the last that's been heard of that. And they were supposed they to They were do... building a studio space. Yeah. But I think COVID put an end to it. Duncan Jones was going to be making Rogue Trooper. Yeah. And, um, and they were going to be making a Mega City One TV show. But they were going to build their own like MCU studio space type studio. Uh, but then COVID happened and it's all gone quiet. Yeah. And even Duncan Jones has stopped talking about it. 
because he does seem to me like he could potentially be someone that could do it justice. He's clearly a 2000 AD fan. And with the way that they would make it, it would be one where like he would have more freedom to make the film that he he wants to make but it's whether it happens or not it seems like a pipe dream to me at this point but definitely a property that has a lot of potential and i think it could work in the future for something yeah and again if anyone knows where that abc robot is whether it's still (laughs) still around because that is just like incredible yeah i imagine it's probably like dismantled and stuff but probably when planet hollywood closed down or something they they should have done something with that because that was just awesome absolutely we need more stuff like that because that is the kind of thing that i think can still have a uh, a gut wow reaction because they built a fucking robot. That's <laughs> like... it. Yeah, that's what they did. They just built a robot. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's no yeah. There's no sleight of hand there. And again, yeah, just because there's a bit of Doctor Who style staging with it, but you can't beat stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, again, I can totally see why. If you're a fan of the comic book series, yeah, you, you wouldn't like it, but. And again, it has that Rob Schneider factor, but he's what's holding the film back. He, he is, he is. It's your ability, whether or not you can tolerate, how much you can tolerate and withstand the charms of Rob Schneider. Because, <laughs> yeah, it, it is strange that initially they frame the film as being his story, because, like, it starts with him. Yeah. And then, obviously, it kind of forgets about him for a while. But I think they originally, obviously, wrote the film as being him as the audience surrogate kind of figure. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it just doesn't work in that regard. <laughs> I think if, you, if you've if you been really hard on this film and maybe haven't watched it for quite a long time, then maybe do give it a rewatch because there is mm-hmm. a lot to enjoy on that visual level. Yeah. And there are some fun things in it. So yeah, it's, um, you know, it's it's not a an awful, awful film by any means. You know, we've, we've seen much worse than this and dull it is not. <laughs> yeah, if only like most like incredibly troubled productions could be yeah. this enjoyable. You know, so many films that come out now that are like people go, yeah, it's nice. dull as shit. So fucking boring. Yeah, yeah. This isn't a boring, dull film. Really isn't. So, but any film that has a director that stands up and says, "Fear me, everyone should fear me," randomly at times, yeah, is not going to be a dull film. Yeah, <laughs> we need more directors like that. <laughs> it's almost like sci-fi pantomime at times, especially yeah. with like Rico. Yeah, He's really like a pantomime villain. <laughs> it is. It works for me. But yeah, I I, I love it. <laughs> And also, again, yeah, what a cast as well, because, I mean, Rob Schneider aside, <laughs> but, you know, there's so many people, like we've, we've said, we've got Jürgen Prock now, Max von Sydow, Joan Chen, mm-hmm. Armando Asante, and then you've got smaller parts. You've got uh, Balthazar Getty in there. Yeah, like Ewan Bremner. Ewan Bremner, uh, Morris Roves, who plays the um, the jailer who gets killed by Rico at the start. He's like a oh, veteran. Oh, shit, of course, yeah. British actor. Tim Thomason from... What's it called? What we um, reviewed on Bargain Binners. Oh, was it ne- Nemesis? Nemesis, that's it, yeah. Oh, of course, he's the reporter in this film. I was going to mention him, yeah. We've seen him in, in a few things. Yeah, so he's like a classic B-movie star. For, was it from... Um... He's Dollman. He's Dollman. And what, what's the other one that he's in? That The big... Is it Trances or something? Yes, he's in Trances, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I actually wrote on my notes as well that he's like just a, a recurring figure in these type of movies that it's always nice to see. Yeah. You know what? It's just he's one of those guys whose whose name just escapes me. I, I didn't know his name, but I know that face. Yeah. And uh, you've even got the cure doing the end title song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is I feel like it's the cure's version of Play Dead. That was the song from the Young Americans, which is 
we we haven't mentioned this, but because we obviously we, we've talked about David Arnold previously in our Quantum of Solace podcast. Yeah, he was like Danny Cannon's friend, and he was the composer on uh, the Young Americans, and that's where the song "Play Dead," the Bjork song, comes from. Which for me, like the great Bond song that never was. I, in fact, I even put yeah. it on my uh, my re-edit of "Die Another Day." It works beautifully with the die another day title sequence actually it's perfect yeah in fact I, to the point where like hmm did danny Kleinman temp track that to, <laughs> to, uh, to the thing because it, it fits in ridiculously well yeah there was a there was an issue because i think that when they they hired danny cannon he wanted to use david arnold as the composer but because it was like it would, it would have been only a second job or you know a very early job i think he'd done stargate at that point yeah, yeah. but um because he was the director's man, I think the studio were like, ah, he's a rookie director. I don't want too many people allied yeah, with yeah. him to give him too much power. So they they went with, um, was it Jerry Goldsmith initially, which I think his music's actually on the trailer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think there was a scheduling issue where we had two other films on the go. So they had to do a last minute change of composers and they went with Alan Silvestri. Now, there was a weird thing I read yesterday about Alan Silvestri's score is that they actually had to record it twice. Oh, right. I didn't know about that. They recorded it at CTS in Wembley initially, but the producers did not like the mix or the arrangement, so they had to re-record it again in LA. And apparently the special edition soundtrack, you know when they do these like one-off, like limited edition soundtracks? Oh, yeah. Both versions of the soundtrack are on that are on those discs. So that's just an interesting side note for the for the music. That will be something that'll be interesting to look into because I didn't know yeah. about that. I didn't know about the whole like um, Jerry Goldsmith thing because the two films that he had scheduling conflicts with where he had already agreed to sign up for I mean Jerry Goldsmith is a in demand composer. Yeah. So yeah. it's either you work within his schedule or he's onto something else. Yeah. So the two films that he ended up doing were Star Trek First Contact yeah. and Congo. <laughs> Congo was the film that he composed the score for that he had to leave Judge Dredd to do. I think it was, was it First Night as well that he also did at that time? I think it's one of those cases where he had so much on his plate if he missed that window, because I think they had a lot of problems with post because I know Danny Cannon was locked. I guess one again, one of those situations where the director's locked out of the post-production schedule, like he, he wasn't involved in the post at all on this film. And again, if they missed a slot with some of these guys, they'd have to go for somebody else like immediately. Yeah, I mean, just to go over the films that Jerry Goldsmith composed a score for at this time, these are films from 95 and 96. Congo, First Night, Powder, City Hall, Executive's Decision, Chain Reaction, The Ghost in the Darkness, and Star Trek First Contact. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> he's a very busy composer. Yeah, so the, again, there's, there's there's so much interesting stuff around this film as well that's that's worth delving into. And yeah. again, it's just a really nice example of a, uh, a visually sumptuous but heavily flawed mid-90s action film. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely, you know, if you haven't watched it, just give it a... Give it a rewatch with maybe less judgmental eyes. There's still a lot to get out of it. Is that a judge dread character judgment? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> less judge. Yeah, we we haven't we haven't done enough like puns in this show. Yeah, less judgmental. <laughs> I agree. I think you have to meet the film on its terms a little bit, especially now you have a lot more context kind of involved with what went on behind the scenes, and also we kind of know what it is now in relation to 2000 AD. We've already made peace with that. Just meet it on its own terms and judge it that way, and I think you'll find more to enjoy about it, except Rob Schneider. <laughs> yeah. And that's all we have time for on this episode of... Co- 
Cock porn dick chest. <laughs> Cock porn dick chest. Dude, that is the new name. <laughs> that's when we review adult movies. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all we have time for on Popcorn Digest. If you join us next time, well, we'll be taken to the skies as we are going to look at Superman 3. That famous film starring Richard Pryor. <laughs> And not Superman, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Superman makes an appearance. Yes. <laughs> Co-starring Christopher Reeve <laughs> and a cameo from Margot Kidder. Yeah. <laughs> but until then, I've been Judge Green. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks for listening. Oh, no.